may be seated. Well, good morning. Welcome to the summer edition of Round Top or Ridge Top Church. Um, really glad that you're here, and uh, we've been working through the Book of Acts. And part of what I think I love about Acts is that it's an origin story. I love origin stories about how uh, companies and organizations and just different things get started. And I, I think this is, this is a, 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 one of the themes in a lot of the movies and the stories that we love. Um, they oftentimes show how a very diverse group of people kind of come together and become a team and then accomplish this great thing. So here's a few examples. Like Ocean's Eleven. This is the, this is the first Ocean's uh, movie. And uh, it's, it shows how this very quirky group of people come together to pull off a heist. Now, they're pulling off a heist. Don't, don't do that. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and then, you know, the subsequent movies are them uh, working together on uh, several different uh, missions. The Guardians of the Galaxy, um, you, you see how this, this, again, a very diverse group, not just of like humans, but of uh, beings coming together to save uh, the galaxy. Um, Harry Potter, even, like the beginnings of, of the books and the movies are showing how these little punk kids are learning their gifts and learning how to work together and how to be friends and eventually have this, you know, great saving uh, of uh, all existence, right? And, and then, you know, the best, the best, right? This is the Fellowship of the Ring. I mean, come on. Come on, come on. Uh, we would call this a second Bible at our house sometimes when we we're raising the kids. Um, that, that, you know, this very, again, diverse group of, we've got elves, we've got hobbits, we, we've got humans, we've got all these different kinds of, of uh, beings that are coming together to save Middle Earth, right? And there's always, again, this story of, of origination. How do these people even know each other and how is it that they come together to form a team and actually actually worked together. And, and this is in part why I think I really love church planting because every church planting uh, story is an origin story. I was talking to a church planter this week who uh, he's, he's going to another place to start a church from scratch. And I was like, you have no idea who the people are going to be that are going to be your initial team, your initial core team, your initial startup team. And I found myself getting excited about like, wow, what, who's it going to be? And how is God going to make this happen? And um, it's, it's an exciting uh, experience that we, too, here are experiencing at Ridgetop. And we get to see the origination of the first church of all time in the book of Acts when we see the opening chapters, especially of the church of uh, Jerusalem. And this church is not just the beginning of a church, but a beginning of a gospel movement that moves out from that church and then into uh, the world and even into this room, right? We would not be here today doing what we're doing if it wasn't for what God did in this little uh, church startup um, in uh, Jerusalem. And so we're, we've already looked at some of the basics, um, the, the very first verses of the, of the book start to introduce us to some things that are going to reoccur over and over. And so one is the centrality of the gospel. Uh, we see this from the very beginning of the, even the introduction of the book, the dependence on the Holy Spirit. This is a big theme, especially in these opening uh, chapters, the prioritization of the mission that they're on. This is, this is very prominent. 
And then last week in Noah's sermon, we saw sort of an expansion of this idea of the dependency on the Holy Spirit. And you see the Holy Spirit empowering the disciples, the apostles, to not just demonstrate the gospel, but proclaim it. They're proclaiming it in languages they don't even know, so that those that are coming from other nations can actually hear the gospel in their heart language. And in addition to that, what you start to see in, in last week's sermon is that not only is God calling individuals to himself supernaturally, but he is creating a new humanity of those individuals, that the Holy Spirit is working, not just to save individual people, but to bring those people together in a supernatural community. And those people are coming from very different kinds of backgrounds, cultures, languages, and this has never been done before at this point in the first century. Like, we think about this story, and we're like, yeah, that makes sense, because we, uh, you know, being in America, we're in a liberal democracy, and this is like what we talk about, you know, like we want all kinds of people to be in fellowship with each other and in community, and so it makes sort of sense to us, but not in the first century. This had not been done. There hadn't been no um, multicultural, multi-ethnic, none of that. That was not a part of of the ancient world uh, culture. You had a plot of ground, and connected to that plot of ground was your gods and goddesses. Connected to those gods and goddesses was your government, and that was what were the, the bounds of your tribe. Whatever your little tribal group was, you had a, a plot of ground, and you had your gods and goddesses that were tribal gods and goddesses. It wasn't like one big god that's over everything. That was not a thing, okay? And you thought of your government, your leaders, as woven in to all of that, right? And so you, you have this kind of a culture in, in first century, ancient world, and then in the opening pages of Acts, we see, oh, God's doing something different. He's doing something very different than a tribal deity on a little plot of ground with a particular culture, particular government that's attached to the tribal deity. He is forming a new tribe. That new tribe is beyond culture. It is, it is beyond language. It is, is beyond government. It's beyond a plot of ground. Again, this seems this, this, it's natural for us to think this way, but that's not how the first century uh, people would have thought. They would have had a, a really hard time uh, embracing this kind of a new, new tribe. And honestly, it's still hard. It's still hard for human beings to have a new tribe community that is beyond culture. Is beyond language. It's beyond politics. And we, we see this in the American church where we're, we're trying to kind of co-opt politics and co-opt uh, American exceptionalism and kind of put it all together with Christianity, right? And it's done a lot of damage to the witness of the church. So even though we look at first century people and we go, oh, man, they were just so unenlightened, it is pretty normal, pretty natural to try to dovetail all these things together in your little tribe over and against all the other tribes. So how can a group of diverse people actually become a new tribe? 
That's the question this morning. How can they become a new tribe? And a new tribe that's actually prioritized over every other tribe. Because we, yes, of course we have allegiances to other lesser tribes, right? But this one to the church that we see in Acts, this, this, this new tribe allegiance was over every other allegiance to, that, they, that they had uh, in their day-to-day lives. And I think Acts 2 gives us uh, some answers for how this happens. How do we do this uh, diverse group of people that form a new tribe that is our primary allegiance? So here's four, four things I'm going to talk about that I see in this passage, and there's certainly more things that we could talk about, but um, here they are. One is it's centered and not bounded. It's centered and not bounded. Uh, it's con- converted instead of coerced. It's converted instead of coerced. It's communal instead of familial. And I'll talk more about what these mean. And it's open instead of closed. Open instead of closed. So these are four things I'm going to talk about. So if you get lost, that's where, that's where I'm headed. Centered instead of bounded. Um, the final line of Peter's sermon that you just heard Steve read, verse 36, and you want to look on, in the scripture with me in uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 36 Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This is his final like, statement, right? This is where he lands. And the reason he's landing there is because this is what his sermon is centered on, Christ. And this is what the new tribe is centered on. The church of Jerusalem is centered on. is centered on Christ. Now, it's interesting how his sermon begins. Is It's an impromptu sermon, really. He's answering uh, a comment that's been made in the crowd. And the comment that's been made is, you guys are drunk. I got speaking all kinds of languages. Like, you're drunk. And he's like... Well, it's 9 a.m., so no, we're not drunk, but here's what's happening. And he quotes the prophet Joel. And most of the quotation from from Joel is about the Spirit. Spirit's going to come. Spirit's going to get poured out. It's going to get poured out on men and women and on on every every child of God, right? And then at the very last line, it says in verse 21, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So it's a passage about the Spirit, and then it ends on the Lord being, being the, the, the salvation. And then he, he's like, let's talk about the Lord. And then he centers the rest of the sermon on the gospel, right? And he talks about David, does, does a few other things. Um, but he's centered on Christ. And that centering on Christ is part of what enables a diverse group to come together as a new tribe. It, it's, it's the opposite of being bounded by norms. So abounding by, okay, well, you know, we're, we're in a particular geography. You say, well, I'm an American citizen. I'm bounded to be an American citizen. I, I have my passport. It says U.S. citizen. I'm bounded, right? That, and most people are excited about that. Some people are like, ah, I don't want to be an American. But you're bounded in, in your geography or bounded by your culture. Right? Like in this culture, don't want to be in another culture, I want to be in this culture. And, and that has some power of cohesion in a, in a culture, in a community, but not as powerfully as something that is centered. And so what Peter's doing in that first sermon and what they continue to do in the life of the church is they continue to center that culture on Christ. 
that community on Christ. Um, and, and this is the start of how you pull together a diverse group of people into a new tribe. It's not the only thing, but it's the start. And so this centering on the gospel uh, is so essential for forming this new uh, humanity. Um, if a church is the same throughout, same culture, they like the same things, they vote for the same people, there's just like this ubiquitous sort of sameness in it, especially if that church is in a neighborhood that is not a neighborhood of sameness. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. This is not the vision that we see in Acts. You see this movement of the Spirit to pull different kinds of people together around the gospel. And when that happens, it becomes a very diverse kind of uh, kinds of people that are that are joining in that uh, community. Um, centering on the gospel is not enough, though. You need supernatural assistance by the Holy Spirit. So you see both this work of the Son being proclaimed, but you also see the work of the Spirit happening as the work of the Son is being proclaimed. Right. So, for instance, verse thirty-seven. After Peter gets done with his sermon, it says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So you see the work of the Son, forgiveness of your sins, and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, work of the Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and he continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. And so those who received his word were baptized and there were added to that day, uh, that day about 3,000 souls. So not, are, not only are these folks centered on the gospel, but they're converted. They're converted. This is not some... Uh, cultural uh, coercion of you ought, you should, and, and, and if, if you don't get in this box, you don't get in this bounded set, uh, shame on you. It's not like that at all. It's preaching of Christ, preaching of the center. And when they hear that, the Spirit convicts them of their sin. And they're like, what do we do? Which is so interesting. I think Peter would have got kind of like a B minus on this sermon because he doesn't even tell them how to respond to the sermon. <laughs> he just preaches Christ. But thankfully, the Spirit is working through that. And so the Spirit is, is working on these folks as, as they're experiencing this preaching of Christ. And, and, and then they're like, excuse me, Peter, what do we do? And he's like, oh, yeah, uh, repent. <laughs> repent. Which is a way of saying... Your entire person is to turn away from your old life, from your old way of sin, and turn in faith toward God. It is a comprehensive kind of thing. It's not, oh, uh, well, sign the document here and join the club, and it's going to be $10.99 a month, and then if you decide you don't want to do it, then it's okay, you can cancel your subscription. Like, it's not like that. 
It's repent. Repent. Turn away from that old life, that old way. Turn toward God in faith. He has so much confidence in the, the, the supernatural miracle that God is doing in their hearts, partly because he's experienced it. He's repented and believed. And he, when he heard the gospel, he repented and believed. And now he's preaching the gospel, and now they're repenting and believing. They're converted, not coerced. They're not bounded. They're centered, and that centering is coming through the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the, the symbol of baptism is a picture of this whole life conversion, right? We did this a few weeks ago where we, we plunged Amy and Caleb both down in the water. We didn't just put one part of them. We put their whole bodies under the water. And it, it in part symbolizes the whole person being given in faith to Christ. And so this conversion is, is required for a church to be the church that God has intended. It's not just an organization with, with some documents. And, with, and, and those things aren't bad. I and mean, we have some documents and we have some stuff that you sign. And it, it's, it's not bad. Uh, it, it's helpful. But at the end of the day, what makes a church a church is that it is a group of people that are actually Christians. They're converted. They've heard the gospel and responded with faith. And they've been filled with God's Holy Spirit. If someone doesn't truly believe they don't repent. Again, I'm not saying oh, you got to be perfect. You become a Christian, you're perfect from that then on. But the lifestyle of repentance is what's expressed by someone who's genuinely believed the gospel. And so again, he's not saying that repentance and belief are the same thing. He's just saying all who truly believe will repent. So he knows that response is what is to be called forth from those who have truly believed on that day. Baptism also becomes a laboratory to see how serious people are. They're like, I want to be a Christian. They're like, well, let's get baptized. That's what Jesus commanded us to do. And there's a struggle. There's like, what? Do I want to do that? But eventually, uh, a Christ follower is going to come to the conclusion, yeah, I do want to get baptized. I want to honor Christ. I want to join my fellowship. I want to proclaim that to the world. And it, it can be a really hard decision. But it is, it's something that a genuine Christian is going to do in obedience uh, to Christ. I, I think one, one of the things we're watching here is a church that's being birthed in a place that is hostile to the church. It's part of why it's, looks, it's so powerful, right? Again, it's not from cultural coercion. It's not you should, you ought, go to church and do this and... Which, you know, those kind of cultures, it's not all bad. Those intentions are not bad. But there's, there's something really special and unique and powerful about church being birthed in a place where there's no cultural co coercion. There's no cultural propping up <laughs> of participation in the church. It has to be the power of God. And honestly, we saw this in New England. We saw a church birthed in a New England college town of all places where Many churches had been tried and had failed, and yet God, in His mercy, birthed the church. And honestly, it's not that different than Austin, especially Central Austin, especially working alongside college students, the University of Texas. Like, like this is not a place to plant a church. 
which is partly why nobody was signing up for the job, right? I mean, and when I was approached, I was like, yeah, I do want to do it. And partly because I've seen God do it in places where you, it's not culturally coerced. It comes out of conversion. And I think we're, we're, we're starting to see that in this place as we're centered on Christ and seeing the work of the Spirit among the converted. Uh, the gospel in the power of the Spirit has power. It is power. Uh, the Apostle Paul, Romans 1.16, says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greeks. Um, commentator Anders Negrin says this, the gospel is not a presentation of an idea, but the operation of a power. When the gospel is preached, it is not merely an utterance. It's something that occurs. The power of God is at work for salvation of men, obviously women as well, snatching them from the powers of destruction and transferring them into the new age of so th- this, is, this is what's happening in the book of Acts, right? The gospel's being preached, and it's not just some information. It's not just some kind of bounded set of cultural coercion. It's something that's converting people, and they're gathering together in a supernatural community around the gospel. Now, thankfully, the gospel is so powerful that the gospel can actually convert religious people. That's how powerful it is. This is partly what you see in the book of Acts. We'll see in a few chapters uh, later uh, that some of the, the priests and some of those that were antagonistic to the gospel and were either even part of getting Christ crucified, they're going to convert. That's some real power. And we've seen this kind of thing throughout American history where those who were churched and religious but not really Christians were converted. We see this in the Second Great Awakening. So you have a, a, a couple of, of awakenings that occurred in American history, and one of those is the Second Great Awakening. And I love the start of it. Um, uh, Timothy DeWight, who was the president of Yale College, this is like the end of 1700s, beginning of 1800s, and uh, so he becomes president of uh, Yale College. He's like the grandson, great-grandson of Jonathan Edwards, who was a very significant preacher in the First Great Awakening. So he takes, you know, gets his office, and he's walking around campus. He's talking to students, and all these students are supposedly training for the ministry. Most of them are pastors in training. And he starts talking to them and thinking, these people are not Christians. They have no interest in Jesus. They do not want to follow Christ in any way. And so he cancels all the chapel speakers, and he assigns himself as the chapel speaker every day, every, every school day. And he just starts preaching the gospel. And he does this for a couple of semesters. And it seems like he's just bouncing off. It's a captive audience. They have to go to chapel. It seems like it's bouncing off. And so about mid-spring, one semester, uh, some, some of the students come by his house who are, are seniors, and they say, we get it. We want to follow Jesus. We want to follow Christ. And they experience a conversion. So he starts doing a little Bible study at the president's mansion with them and trying to help them learn how to be a disciple. But then they, they, they leave for the summer. And he's literally writing in his journal thinking, this is the worst timing, God. What are you thinking? Like, why didn't you do this in the fall? And then I could have been working with them all you know, two semesters. And you, uh, what's going on? Well, these students that had come to faith in Christ go back to all their eastern seaboard dead churches 
and they share about what Christ has done in their lives, and those churches come back alive. And this is the beginning of the Second Great Awakening. A bunch of church kids coming to faith in Christ. Right? So this gospel conversion can happen in a lot of different settings. It can be people that are far, far from uh, God, culturally speaking, who never even walked in a church. And we, we saw a lot of that in New England. But it can also be those that have been in the church for a long time, and just for whatever reason, the gospel really hasn't landed, and they haven't really repented and believed. And God can bring that kind of conversion uh, about. And when those conversions are occurring and people are, are truly centered on the gospel, it gives way to a supernatural community. A supernatural community. This is, this is what we're seeing birthed in Acts 2, uh, is this supernatural community. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs are being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So I'm saying this is their communal instead of familial. Um, in first century, culture was communal, so to speak. Um, it's what sociologists would call a strong group culture, where the, the expectations and the needs of the group are held over the expectations and needs of the individual. So strong, strong group as opposed to a weak group culture. We got a lot of weak group culture in American culture, right? This is a very, very different kind of culture than some of you grew up in, although some of you did grow up in strong group cultures. So Hispanic culture, for instance, typically is a strong group culture. The expectations and the needs of mom and dad, the expectations and needs of maybe grandparents, of older siblings, those typically would take precedent in a Hispanic culture background. And, and honestly, many, many other cultures around um, the world, except for white Europeans and white Americans. They, they are typically a weak group kind of culture, very individualistic. So I say all that to help us understand the discipleship struggle in the first century was not individualism. It was to put the priorities of strong group church over strong group family. That was the struggle in the discipleship of first century believers. Um, you see this kind of prioritization in some of Jesus' teaching. So, for instance, when in Luke 9, which is such an important uh, under, uh, chapter for understanding discipleship, uh, Jesus is talking to some potential disciples, and he says, follow me. <laughs> but this, this potential disciple says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus says to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, those are provocative words to our ears. I'm telling you, they're 10 times more provocative to the ears of the first century. To be saying, you need to give this new tribe priority over the family tribe was just mind-boggling 
for those original Christians. Um, you see Jesus teaching this in Mark 3 when his own mothers and, and brothers show up. Uh, verse 31 of Mark 3, and his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. What? That, that is provocative, right? And he's, he's pushing on them to prioritize the new tribe over the old tribe. And that would have been a really hard stretch for those in that first century uh, culture. Jesus is teaching them to be communal with each other and not familial, not familial. Now, um, what's, what's, what's interesting is, is what would have been the kinds of loyalties in the family structure in the ancient world would have been to siblings over your spouse. Again, this, this doesn't mean this is right. This would have been first century culture that marriages were arranged and they were arranged to get more money and more honor for your family unit. It was a familial kind of culture. And you were more loyal to your siblings because they were blood. So when you read in the Bible that we are brothers and sisters in Christ, you look at that and you're like, eh, maybe you're close to your siblings, maybe you're not. You're like, yeah, that, that sounds good. It kind of warms my heart. I'm telling you, first century people heard that and they went, what? You're, you're saying I have the kind of allegiance to my brothers and sisters in the church like I do my siblings? Yeah. Yeah. It's very provocative. It's very profound and difficult for the first century Christian. I think we look at them and think, oh, it was so easy for you guys to be communal because you were already communal and it's hard for us modern people. It was hard for them too. It was hard for them for different reasons for the most part, but it was hard for them too. So, what does it mean to be communal, right? To, to commit to that new tribe? A couple, couple of things. This is not exhaustive, but what we see in Acts 2 is this commonly held practices and commonly held provision. Commonly held practices and commonly held provision. So this Acts 2.42 tells you the practices. There's four practices. I think this is so important for us as a church as we think about what it is we're supposed to be doing. So the first one's apostles teaching. So they are committed to not just individually, but corporately learning the gospel and how to apply the gospel to daily life. And they don't have a New Testament that they're walking around with. The New Testament is walking around in the apostles. So they're showing up at the temple courts every day. Like, teach me some more. Tell me that story about Jesus that you said yesterday. I want to hear that again. I want to get that one down, right? And they're, they're learning about Christ, and then they're, they're, they're teaching him about the cross, and they're tying it to the Old Testament. And so this apostles' teaching is what they're experiencing. Now, thankfully, we have it written down in the Bible. The apostles wrote letters, and those that had access to the apostles wrote letters, and those make up our New Testament. And so we, we, we study and we apply Scripture, but we do need to do it corporately, not just individually, but corporately. You're doing it right now. Good job. You're doing, you're doing a practice right now of corporately 
hearing the word taught and seeking to apply it to everyday life. Um, the, the, the practice of, uh, the, of devoting oneself to the fellowship, right? the fellowship, uh, the relationship between the brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, and as I said before, those sibling relationships would have been the strongest relationships in that strong group culture. And so these are the, 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 the strongest relationships, so to speak. Now, what's really cool is when your family is, are Christians and they fold into the new tribe. And we see this. We see whole households coming to faith in Jesus, and they're folded into that new tribe, right? But that's not always the case, and there's a lot in the New Testament about what do you do when your husband doesn't want to become a Christian? What do you do when people in your own family are persecuting you? How do you handle that, right? And it's, it's new tribe loyalty um, that's taught in the New Testament. Um, a devotion to um, the uh, breaking of bread. Right? The breaking of bread. Um, this most likely is allusion to communion, which was a really important part, a weekly part of worship in the first century. Partly we know that because it, even in archaeological excavations of, of the first like church buildings in the Roman Empire, what do you see in the middle is a communion table. And so they were, yes, hearing the teaching of the word, they were also taking communion week in and week out. It's partly how they may remain centered on the gospel. They kept going to, to communion over and over and over in this corporate kind of an experience. But I think it's also saying they're devoted to corporate worship, right? Devoted to the breaking of bread. They're devoted to corporate worship, coming together, worshiping together with the church, with their brothers and sisters in Christ. And then fourthly, the practice of prayer. They were devoted to prayer, not just as individuals, but in a corporate way. They're praying for each other in a culture of prayer, they were gathering together to pray. We'll see in Acts, there's a few prayer meetings that we'll get to experience as we look at these, uh, th th this new church uh, devoted to prayer. Now, this verse has a lot um, of meaning for us as a church. If you've been through our membership class, you know we talk about the five devotions, right? And we put up this little, uh, uh, little schematic here, and so at the core is, is worship, worship of Jesus, right? And we're devoted to the Word. That's the Apostles' teaching. We're, we're devoted to prayer. We're devoted to the fellowship. And we're devoted to mission. And we'll talk about that here in a minute. But these are the practices of the ancient church. These have been the practices for the church for 2,000 years. And this is part, partly how uh, we become this new tribe, is that we have commonly held practices. Uh, secondly, we have commonly held uh, provision. Um, we, we see this generosity that's being uh, experienced in the new, the, the, the new church. Um, verse 44 says, All who believed were together, and they had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Wow! The generosity that's just being poured out. Now, part of this was the need was great because a lot of these... Uh, pilgrims had come in for Pentecost. They had come from different places, and they weren't living in Jerusalem, but the New Testament was in Jerusalem and the apostles, and they couldn't leave. And so they were like talking to the Jerusalem Christians who had homes. They're like, hey, can I sleep on your couch? Can I eat your food? And the, uh, the, the, the Christians that were based in Jerusalem were like, yeah, come hang out. I mean, it's pretty, pretty, sounds pretty fun. Um, and so they're just do, living in community, growing in the gospel in 
but, but it's requiring a lot of, of generosity, um, and it's pretty, it's pretty astonishing. Um, this, is, this is hard to teach to first century Christians because their resources would have, would have been earmarked for their familial tribe. And so giving this away to, to strangers would have really been a hard sell. And it's a really hard thing for Americans to do it. And sometimes that's family needs, but oftentimes it's just individual wants. Uh, I, I remember um, in one of our previous churches going on a little pastoral visit, and this was after I had just been in an elders meeting where uh, the, the treasurer had given us a report on the church finances and was saying, yeah, there's, there's not a lot of money coming in because the only people that are really tithing, like giving like hundreds of dollars a, a, a month, these are the, are the elders and their families, and no one else really is doing that. And I just remember walking out going, oh my gosh, I'm failing as a pastor. How do I help people understand the importance of generosity? How's our church going to make it if we can't get any kind of uh, generosity going? And, and, and I leave that, and I go to a, a, a church member's house, and uh, I walk in, and they're like, look at our new kitchen that we just remodeled. I'm like, wow, that's amazing. And they started telling me about the amazing vacation that they're about to go on and spend tens of thousands of dollars. And I was like, ah, this is not okay. Knowing that this family has just given a few bucks, right? And, and so th this is a miracle of God, honestly, to give generous hearts to people. I mean, we're, we're, our default is survival mode, right? whether it's our individual survival, our family survival, and, and to give away generously, it's, it's a miracle of God. And that's what we see in the book of Acts. The Spirit working in these converted people is overflowing into not, not just commonly held practices, but commonly held provision and just giving generously. And every time you give, you are saying no to something, right? You're saying no to the vacation or maybe the expensive vacation. Or you're saying no to, I could have paid off a little more of that student loan, right? Like, like there's always like a, a no that you're saying when you say yes to giving. And at the end of the day, you're saying, and I'm doing this as I trust you, God. You, you're my provider. I, I'm going to commonly hold this provision, not because it's mine and I'm going to make the decision to give it. It's because it's actually yours and you've entrusted it to me to steward. And, and these folks in the first century, they, they are getting that. And they're commonly holding the provision and giving it as people have needs. And then fourthly, they're open as opposed to closed. So verse 46, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. There's some things converging in that, those final two verses there. You've got a bunch of converted Christians who are centering themselves on the gospel of Christ which is overflowing into this tight-knit community that is then on mission to reach new people with the gospel. This is what we want. This is what we want to be. Right? This is partly why this, this, this church is so important to understanding the nature of a healthy church, these converted Christians who are living in community, and that community is not just inward-facing. This is the open part. 
that, that they could be really tight-knit family, brothers and sisters, commonly holding practices and provision, and at the same time, look out at those who are not yet Christians. And it says day by day, like daily, people are hearing the gospel, becoming Christians, and coming into this community of missionaries. It's a, it's a work of the Spirit. This, this is not normal for human beings. It's not normal for first century human beings. It's not normal for people in 2023 Austin, Texas. It's a work of the Spirit. I mean, sociologists tell us that when we know, we walk in a room, if we know 60 people, we are not interested in meeting another person. We're not interested. We're, our, our relational tank is full. And we're just trying to catch up with who we know. New people can walk in. They're like, I don't even see them because I haven't seen my 60 peeps yet. I haven't talked to them yet, right? And sometimes megachurches get a bad rap, right? It's like, oh, those megachurches, they're so impersonal. They don't greet people. They don't, you just walk in, walk out. And what we don't realize is this is a megachurch in Acts. This is 3,000 people in their first service that came to faith. A few pages later, there'll be 2,000 more. So there's a ton of people, but still they have a culture of openness as they're inviting new people into this tight-knit community. And again, Luke is quick to point out, the Lord added to their number those being saved. Like this is a work of the Spirit. This is miraculous. But it is something the Spirit wants to do. He's all about it. And those willing to take God up on his offer to gather around the gospel and to seek to be community for each other, to seek to be that new tribe with each other and be open to those who've not yet responded in faith to the gospel. The Spirit is all about it and accomplishing that uh, among us. So how do we respond to this? Um, In part, I read this and I'm just like, Lord, I don't, I don't even know where to start. Like, this is so awesome, and I don't, I don't know how to make this happen because I can't. I can't. But I can lead you in the practices, okay? So here, here's just really brief um, ways that, that I think we can be centered as opposed to bounded. So we're centered by preaching Christ. We preach Christ. We preach Christ every week. You're going to to sing of Christ in the gospel. You're going to hear it preached every week. We're going to see it in the bread and the cup here in a minute. We're going to talk about Christ in the small group. We're going to talk about it in in like informal settings, in counseling times. We're going to center, center, center. We're centered on Christ. Secondly, we're going to pray. If we want the Spirit, to use that centering on Christ in a miraculous way, the only thing I know to do is to pray and to ask God to do it. And I believe He will. I've seen Him do it, and I believe He will. He will do it. He will bring people to faith in Jesus. He will wake up sleepy Christians that maybe they're Christian-ish, and He will reach people far, 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 far from God, culturally speaking, and everything in between. Because the gospel is power. It is power. We keep preaching Christ. And when I say preaching Christ, I don't just mean me standing up here preaching. I mean all of us proclaiming, demonstrating the goodness 
of the gospel. So we preach, we pray, and um, we practice. We practice, right? So if, if we're going to be communal, we're going to have to have some communal practices. And so those devotions, those five devotions that are here in the, in the, in the passage that we have today, uh, we're going to do those things. We're going to devote ourselves to the study and application of Scripture and to prayer and to the fellowship and to the mission, all centered on the worship of Christ. And then we're going to be open, and the way we're going to do that is we're going to pursue. We're going to pursue relationships. We're going to pursue relationships. And that is pursuing relationships in the church and outside the church. And this is how relationships happen, guys. They don't ever happen just accidentally, really, real relationships. They happen because you're moving towards someone. And if there's friendships that are building here, it's because someone took the initiative to reach out to another someone and say, hey, let's get coffee. Let's have, let's have dinner. Come over to my place. We have some friends over. They pursued, and then that facilitated a relationship. And as that's done for you, you're doing that for others, and you're doing it both for those in the church, but those outside the church as well. It doesn't mean you have to do it with 100 people. It just means everyone that's a part of that community of missionaries is pursuing. They're pursuing each other, and they're pursuing those who are in their realms of, um, of influence, whether it be at work or school or neighborhood or friends that are not yet Christians or whoever. But we're, we're, we're actively uh, pursuing. And we are reminded of this centering on Christ every time we come to this table. We are remembering that community of missionaries that uh, was there in the upper room with Jesus. And he could have said a lot of things to them that night, right? And he did. An upper room discourse in John is a, kind of a download about everything. Um, but the thing he wanted them to remember was the thing that he illustrated with some concrete illustrations. And he took bread that night, he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them, and he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Of all those things that he taught them that night, he draws them back to the center. Right? And in the same way, he took the, the cup, and after he had blessed it, he gave it to them, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. When he starts using covenant language, that's, that's communal language. He's saying, I am building a new tribe that is centered on the death, burial, and resurrection. And he's, he's making sure that that new tribe remembers that. And part of how they remember it is they take this bread and they take this cup. And they do it over and over and over. And he says, hey, do this until I come back. Right? That's how long you need to do it. So we've been doing this for 2,000 years. We're doing it this morning. And we're going to keep doing it until he comes back. And it's a reminder to center on Christ, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Let's pray. God, thank you for um, just the beautiful vision of the book of Acts. And this church, though imperfect, uh, it, it, it is such a great example for us uh, to, to understand what you had in mind we thank you for the opportunity as a new church plant to, 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 to take this seriously, to embrace it with all our hearts and minds and soul and strength as we learn how to 
be this community of, of missionaries together centered on the gospel. And we admit to you, Lord, we, we can't do this on our own. We're going to need your Holy Spirit to activate us. Thank you for the ways you already have done that. Thank you for the community that is already here. Thank you for the mission that has already been participated in. Thank you for those who've already been affected by the gospel witness of this little church. But Lord, we know you're just getting started. And so as we center on the gospel this morning, God, would you encourage us and empower us and use us, Lord, in this city, on these campuses, for your glory and for the good uh, of this place. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. If you never-